0: A very warm welcome to everyone. Welcome back to those who are following these calls and welcome to all of you who are joining us for the first time today. Just to let you know that we've had over 2,200 people sign up for this series and about 15 to 30% of you are on the calls. Some are calling in as a group and people are calling in from the US, from Canada, from the EU, New Zealand, Italy, Finland, Ireland, UK, India, South Africa, so it's a a wonderful representation of us as a global community. My name is Tanissara and I'm the host and moderator for our conversation, Mindfulness, Dharma and Climate Action. It is our hope that these conversations here will encourage each of you to engage conversations on climate change in your own communities. But before we begin, I would like to also encourage your support for this series and for the ongoing work of Dharma and Climate Action through making a donor contribution. This will help us to continue our work and for that we need your support. You can do this through going on the One Earth Sangha website, going to support our work in the menu and finding the donor button. Thank you so much. We are in increasingly precarious times in regard to the impact on the natural environment from our ways of living. It is clear that unless we radically change our relationship to Mother Earth, to each other and ourselves, we will jeopardize a sustainable world for future generations. Today, to explore this issue, I welcome our three teachers and speakers. Catherine McGee from Devon in the UK is a teacher at Gaia House and a student of the Diamond Heart approach. She emphasizes embodiment and working with whatever hinders us from living our deepest knowing in the world through body, speech and mind in her teachings. Chris Cullen is a Dharma teacher and psychotherapist from the UK. Chris co-founded the UK-based Mindfulness in Schools Project and is on the teaching team at the Oxford University Mindfulness Center. Chris also teaches at Gaia House in the UK and offers mindfulness courses for members of Parliament and peers in the Houses of Parliament London. James Barris from Berkeley, California is a founding teacher of Spirit Rock Meditation Center. James has also initiated the very successful Community Dharma Leader Program and has been teaching the popular online course, Awakening Joy. I also welcome our team, Barry Bettman from our host, Maestro Conference, Kristen Barker, co-founder of One Earth Sangha and White Awake, Yong Oh, teacher at Chattanooga Insight and Center for Mindful Living, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Lou Leonard, co-founder of One Earth Sangha and leader of climate change program at World Wildlife Fund and our science advisor for our series. So before I hand you over to Lou, again I welcome you and just invite you to take a deep breath, to really feel the breath in your body and then as you breathe out to relax into your body and to feel the sensation of sitting in your seat and on the earth, connecting with that sensation. And taking a deeper breath again, and as we do so, breathing in and feeding the air in our body, breathing out, relaxing, and arriving into our presence, into our hearts, and into our body. Thank you. So, Lou, please, if uh, I can invite you to say a few words, then hand it over to our first teacher, Catherine.
1: Thank you, Tanisra, and hello, everyone. It's wonderful to be with you again today. I wanted to remind you all of the background paper that Priti Kenko and I have put together for the course. Um, we've sent that. To you all, a link to it in um, in emails that we've sent you so far, and if you'd like to um, if you'd like to access it directly from the website, you can do that um, at the One Earth Sangha website on the archive page, where each of these talks um, are um, you know are placed after uh, after we finish. Um, also, wanted to remind folks that if you have some questions that you would like to bring into the discussion, feel free to um, email those to the email address questions at oneearthsanga.org. Um, and again, as a reminder, we're recording this and we'll, uh, the recording will be archived um, in the next day or so uh, for those who aren't able to join um, in person or if you'd like to listen to it again. So, so today we're going to, among other things, begin to explore a little bit of moving into action on on climate change. and. You know, and the science research shows us that this can be one of the big obstacles for some uh, as they um, begin to move into this space because climate change can feel so big um, and so uh, impossible for individuals to, um, to have an impact on. Um, and sometimes it even feels like, uh, you know, th- that no action is happening and certainly not enough. So I just want you to know that working on this every day, I feel those things uh, too uh, often uh, in my own heart. And, um, but, I, but I can tell you that there is a lot going on right now activity-wise on, on climate change. And um, uh, just on Friday, uh, as a sort of up-to-the-minute uh, update, uh, world governments agreed to take the last steps to set up the new Green Climate Fund. Um, which will help support uh, vulnerable uh, communities and countries as they prepare for climate change. Uh, I expect to see a down payment of at least 10, 10 billion U.S. dollars pledged uh, next month um, to open up that green climate fund and, and even see a pledge by the United States, which would be a which would be uh, impressive. Um, but it's not just government action that matters. Individual action uh, really matters a lot. We, we need to look no further than the People's Climate March from last month to show what kind of an impact we can have as individuals. And in the background paper, I just wanted to point out on pages 5 and 6, you can see some examples of, of ways that you can get involved individually, and there's also a resource section at the end of the paper uh, with more ideas. Uh, And then, of course, what you're doing right now um, is actually one of the most important things you can do because um, helping to understand how our emotions and our hearts are affected by climate change um, is so critical to staying resilient and to help others do the same in the face of this crisis. So thank you for taking this action, this important brave step, and for your willingness to, to do more. So I'm I'm really grateful um, to to be able to hand you over to um, Catherine McGee, who's really one of the biggest and wisest hearts exploring the space uh, of the Dharma and climate change. Catherine, thank you for being with us.
2: Mm, thanks, Lou. <clears throat> yeah, and I'm just pausing to land and feel my legs, feel my heart, and the excitable sensation that's arising in my arms as I come to share and explore with you all. I'd like to bring to the conversation a question that I've been pondering that is helping me go deeper with the question of how to come into action. And the question goes something like this. What is the meeting place of the silence of the sage, and the passion of the activist. Where do they meet? And where do they meet in me? My love for the silent depth that we're invited into in our practice, where we can know what it's like to not be blown around by what arises internally in me and what arises externally. And how to hold that with my love of conditions, my love of life, my love of what can arise internally and externally. The other way I'm holding the question for myself is how to hold the timeless refuge of the Dharma, really invited into that timeless knowing, with a very real urgency in time. So coming into action, whatever action we take, we know from the Eightfold Path and we know from our direct experience, if we investigate, that action always comes from intention. And our intention always comes from our view, right view, wise view, or or not wise view, as the case may be, that right view, wise view heads up the Eightfold Path. One way I like to understand right view This really, un- really helped to understand this by one of my teachers. Right view is that you are, I am, right now, here and now in this place, you are an open system. You're not a closed system, you're an open system. That everything we do affects everything else. There is no sealed unit, no fixed entity that we can retreat into or push our way forward with. We are an open system. Another way of seeing this is that we sit at the interface of inner conditions, our inner responses moment to moment to the world within us and around us. We sit at this interface of inner And outer, how the outer world meets the inner. And this is the meeting place. This is the meeting place that I want to reflect on and look a little bit more into just now. Because that's where we always are. Like right now, as I speak, if I take a breath, that's where I am. There's the inner conditions arising. There's still some kind of excitement and nervousness and. tenderness in my heart, meeting the knowledge in my head that, wow, I'm sitting here with a lot of people. I can't see them. but I'm sitting here with a lot of Dharma friends who want to listen and look into these questions. And as I say that, my heart softens. Some of the nervousness relaxes. And this is where we always are, at this interface. And can we learn how to rest at that interface? Because that's sacred. That is whole. It has a wholeness to it where I'm not fragmenting or pushing away parts of myself or parts of the world in order to stay comfortable or okay. So it's not always easy to be an open system. There's so much co- can be coming up for us sometimes, and so much coming towards us sometimes. So we have our practice for stabilizing and grounding to not be blown around. But it's not easy. We're not a fixed entity, this open system. It's sensitive, it's responsive, it's easily impacted, and we deeply feel. So in whatever actions we come to take in our response to the climate crisis, for this to be truly sustaining for us and truly nourishing, we are invited to cultivate this deep intimacy with ourselves, because that's where we are, so that whatever action we take, we don't leave ourselves behind. So I want to take us into an example now. Um, a couple of weeks ago I had the good fortune to speak on Skype with a Dharma teacher, a, 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 one of my Dharma teachers, and to discuss what we were doing in this mindfulness and climate work together. And he's a, an old, wise, older, wise, old tree of a man who's, I think, handled a lot internally and externally. And I know he cares deeply about the planet, her beings, and this crisis that we're in together. And as we sat and breathed together and we were considering this topic, I brought to the table some of the information from Lou's sheets, that Lou's uh, science information that he gave us. And I brought it into the meeting and I said, um, Can I offer this? He said, Yes. I said, We now know that to stay within two degrees Celsius of warming, to have a fair chance of staying within that, which will be to avoid more catastrophic um, runaway climate change, that we can only burn 565 more gigatons of fuel to make that much uh, CO2 in the atmosphere, to release that much. And he paused and he considered, and I said, and the fossil fuel companies currently have 2,790 potentially burnable gigatons in reserves, in the knowable traditional reserves. And we breathed, and I looked at him and I saw his face. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've delivered some bad news. And I said, how are you doing? Is, how, how is that, to hear that? And he said, Catherine, that is truly bone jangling. That is truly bone jangling. His bones were jangled. And it looked, as I saw him, it looked like a wind just blew right through him. Stirring stuff, he said. This is stirring stuff indeed. So how to take that stirring stuff into our practice so that we can hold it within the sacred matrix and restore our stuff into the sacred matrix. Because as we handle what arises, and as I was with him, I could feel my impatience and my sorrow and my pain. As I learn to handle that, my silence, my love of the silence, helps me not be blown away by all that's arising. And the passion the bone jangling, the fire that also arises can help me be alive. That that energy, when together with silence, can serve to light up and illuminate more truth, more ways to see the situation, more ways to understand skillful action. This is the meeting place for me, this silence, this grounded, imperturbable silence, and that which is willing to be perturbed willing to be altered by this information, willing to be woken up further into the sacred matrix of life. So I'm thinking of like the bright lights of our history and the bright lights that are shining in all of you as we, as we come into this together. I'm thinking of those beings who really exemplify this spiritual depth and this bright, alive passion for justice. You know, an easy one my mind goes so straight away to is Nelson Mandela, who had that spiritual depth to hold complexity, ambiguity, uncertainty, discomfort, dis-ease. could hold that, and yet that bright aliveness illuminated the territory for us. For, for us. It's like a bright light in the world. So as I, having been with my teacher, I stood at my back door and I took this into my practice. And as I handled my material, yes, there was my material, my stirred stuff. But also then my opening into more ease, less tightness. And then the thought arose. If I'm not tight, maybe I wouldn't act, you know, as if trusting action would only come from tightening up. And I breathed and I softened. And as I stayed close, this heart-mind, this chitta, this meeting place got wider and wider. And I sensed, as all those little knots and pains unfolded, the energy didn't dissipate. I saw that this heart-mind was teeming with life. Teeming with life that sometimes is encapsulated and hurting and in bondage, but also so much more than that. As I listened, I sensed this teeming life, and I got the potentiality of us, this meeting place, in coming into action. This is sacred. This is the same nature, this heart-mind, that I see out there. It's ever-receptive restoring itself constantly and keeps revealing itself more and more the more I dare to live and breathe as an open system. And this is where I want to meet you and this is where, when I remember, this is where I meet myself. And I think as a Sangha, this is where we can support each other in meeting each other. That our actions come from that, what flows out from that will be a reflection of that inner orientation. So as urgent as our awakening is to a responsible and cooperative relationship with each other and the biosphere for the continuing of life, it's also essential if we are to remain human and let our human nature unfold its riches. So that's that's where I want to leave you um, as, as we move to Chris and move into action. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for your words. Catherine's so, so very beautiful and moving. I can feel them learning and the heart being opened and body softening into this incredible interface uh, that we hold and can be with in such a, uh, a sacred way. Uh, Chris, uh, welcome. I'd like to welcome you. Chris is a very dear friend, and I'm so grateful you can join us on the call and uh, please um, welcome you to share your
3: considerations for us this morning. Thank you, Tanisha, and hello, everyone. It's really uh, moving and inspiring to connect and be with you all in this conversation. And I'd invite you and invite myself just again to reconnect with our contact with the ground, with the earth, with the body. Um,
0: uh, Chris, Chris, while, while... Just sorry, there's a slight echo in your voice. I don't know in the... the, Whatever you were doing earlier...
3: How is that now? Is that any better? That's
0: that's, great, yeah. I'm so sorry, yeah.
3: No problem. So yeah, reconnecting with the body, with the breath, with our contact with the ground. Because it does seem as if Reconnecting is what this is about. The climate crisis has arisen as a result of us humans becoming tragically disconnected from ourselves and from each other and from the earth. And as I'm becoming more mindful of my own patterns of connecting and disconnecting in relation to the climate crisis, I'm really appreciating the wisdom that's set out in a book called Active Hope by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnston. And many of you may know this or have read it. And in a very clear and compassionate and inspiring way, they, they highlight the perennial spiral of four processes that are involved in the work of reconnecting. And so I'd like just to offer a few reflections on these themes. And the first of them is the theme of coming from gratitude. In, as we know in the story of the Buddha's awakening, his first practice after awakening was gazing at the Bodhi tree in gratitude and appreciation. And what a profoundly resourcing and healing and reconnecting practice this is, learning how to open our awareness and our senses to receive with gratitude the presence, the gift of a tree of a forest, of a city park, of a garden, even of a plant in our homes. And of course, the First Nation and native people across the globe seem always to have known that this is not a luxury. Practices of thanksgiving and deep communion with nature are essential to bringing us back into a right relationship with the larger life of which we're part. They build reverence, they bring healing, they open us to joy and to love. And so whether we're feeling numb and disconnected in relation to climate change, or on fire and in flow as an activist, or burnt out in despair and fatigue, there's a deep value in making a regular practice of mindful, grateful being in nature centralizing thanksgiving in our lives as a key part of our response to climate change. Thanksgiving and gratitude support and nourish the heart. They remind us of our deep belonging and they also help to develop our capacity to honor our pain for the world. And this is the second of these themes in the spiral, opening to the personal and collective pain that we hold for what human beings have done and are doing to the biosphere, reflecting what relationship with this pain is showing up in my experience right now. And as we do that, we, we can notice that we have different relationships at different times. Sometimes I feel overwhelmed by anger, fear or despair and need to practice reconnecting with a sense of resource that can support me, can support us in holding pain with mindfulness and compassion. And I really appreciated Tara's words in the first uh, of these conversations about dropping the storyline of the bad other and allowing, connecting, breathing with the raw energy that has within it the care and compassion that our hearts are are, are born for. I notice that my tendency is often uh, instead to be in a state of disconnection where the daily demands of personal work and family life can keep me somewhat out of contact with the urgency of the climate crisis and with the searing social, racial, and ecological injustice and suffering that's taking place in frontline communities. This, I know, is the disconnection of of privileged distance, because the place where I live happens not to have been badly affected by climate change so far. And it feels that there's a particular moral imperative for those of us in this position to lean in and to educate ourselves by reading, watching, and learning and I appreciated Catherine's words just now about the importance of making this self-education a practice to watch and read and learn and and discover more about climate change and the the suffering that's involved in it as a meditation, as a conscious heart work, really to, to practice opening to this stirring stuff because this is precisely the work that we as human beings are most needing to practice doing, coming consciously into contact with the truth of climate change and its suffering, and allowing ourselves to be affected. And we need to learn the skills of this and to pass them on to others. There's research in the UK suggesting that almost 80% of people accept the science of climate change, but only 14% act accordingly. And so there's talk about the need to move the unmoved, those who know the facts but are apparently not affected by them. And it's been inspiring and challenging that some scientists have recently been really acknowledging the role of spiritual traditions in doing this work. And perhaps there's an important role for the mindfulness movement uh, as it spreads into wider society to play a part in doing this so developing our capacity learning how to resource ourselves to turn towards and to honor our pain our individual our collective pain for the world and this opens us into the possibility also of seeing with new eyes a transformation of view In the book, Joanna and Chris write about developing a wider sense of self, a different kind of power, a richer experience of community, and a larger view of time. And although there's not... I I, I won't speak about each of these now, but I would really encourage you to read this book uh, and to um, familiarize yourself with with this material. And this practice of seeing with new eyes... I think, is, is one that really takes us to, to what we're doing when we practice mindfulness, when we practice Dhamma. This sense of, of Dhamma and mindfulness practice as consciously practicing ways of looking that lead our hearts towards greater freedom, connection, and compassion. So the sense that there's a subtle but significant contemplative work to do in becoming mindful of the ways of, look, of ways of looking that disconnect us, that support the creation of self and other, whether that's in relation to other people or to the earth itself, and practicing ways of looking that honor and open the deeper truths of our connection and our interdependence. Giving time to this in our meditation practice. Practicing widening our metta, our hearts, to include all creatures and the earth itself. Practicing holding the current climate emergency in a sense of vast time and noticing how this affects us. Practicing releasing the clinging to outcomes as we respond to climate change and trusting and feeling into The value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself, as Thomas Merton puts it. A transformation of view that reconnects us and so develops our capacity to respond to suffering in the world with greater wisdom and compassion. And this brings us to the fourth of these perennial themes, the theme of, of going forth reconnecting contemplative work with action in the world. And and James will say some more about this in a moment. But as Catherine has been reflecting, contemplation and activism need and support each other. Climate change is a challenge to bring them into conscious relationship, into what Andrew Harvey calls sacred activism, the activism of the Bodhisattva path. As the saying goes, action absorbs anxiety. It builds confidence and connection. And wise action coming from love is contagious. And so now, as we're having these conversations at this time, maybe is a good time for each of us to review and reflect, what are my specific intentions in response to climate change? Are there particular connections or pledges that I feel called or inspired to make? Are there ways in which I could reduce the carbon footprint of the building I call home? Maybe by looking at better insulation or even just small daily acts, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama says in his autobiography, just because switching off the lights on leaving a room seems inconsequential, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. I've been reviewing my transport patterns, mindful of the fact that these are a huge source of of CO2 emissions, especially in flying. Are there ways in which we could make different choices about travel, both locally and further afield? What about our diet, what I eat and where it comes from, and our other patterns of consumption? The Buddha presented compassionate renunciation, voluntary simplicity in the service of compassion as a path to joy and an expression of love. As Tanissara said at the start of today's conversation, having courageous conversations, talking with people in our homes, our communities, our sanghas, our workplaces these are one of the main ways in which we can help bring the conversation into wider society and not collude with the taboo of keeping quiet about climate change. And there is a growing wisdom about how to do this in ways that engage and connect rather than alienate. I appreciate the work of George Marshall and the Climate Outreach Information Network here in Oxford in the UK on this. And What uh, the science seems to be suggesting, and both Lou and and, uh, Catherine have referred to this, is the biggest leverage we can have in helping to prevent runaway climate change is in helping to build political momentum locally, nationally, and internationally to help keep fossil fuels in the ground. And this points to the importance of encouraging our councils, our churches, our universities, Our arts organizations and governments to divest and change their relationship with the fossil fuel industries seeking to replace fossil fuels with more sustainable sources of power and of course this is not about creating more us and them thinking all of us in developed economies are involved in consuming fossil fuel um, products and But what this is pointing to is the sense that this is a systemic problem that we all need to take action on to help move us to more sustainable ways of living. Mm, And so as we as we contemplate the Dharma of climate change, as we absorb what it's teaching us, as we seek to respond with wisdom and compassion to its challenge, as we hear its call to reconnect with ourselves, each other, and with the earth. Perhaps this perennial spiral of four themes can hold and illuminate the contemplative and active work in which we're engaged, coming from gratitude, honoring our pain for the world, seeing with new eyes in ways that transform our view, and going forth into action together, knowing that we do so in Sangha and in solidarity with each other and with this beloved, precious Earth. That's
0: so tremendous. Thank you so much, Chris. You. I feel you just, uh, just completely um, encouraged uh, the passion that you speak with and laying out a tremendous path for us to engage. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Catherine, again. Thank you, Chris. Uh, wonderful, wonderful words of encouragement, uh, deep words, um, engaged and empowered, empowering words. Uh, I'm very, very thrilled that also James Burrows is uh, with us uh, today to continue uh, the last part of our teacher input. Uh, James, welcome, and thank you for your input.
4: Hmm. Thank you very much, uh, Tinasura, and uh, it's great to be on the call with, uh, with Catherine and Chris and you and uh, and our team and uh, all the people that are on the call from around the world, um, and uh, hearing both Catherine's words and, and Chris's uh, uh, naturally uh, inspire and move me. Catherine talking about the being willing to feel the vulnerability of uh, of what goes on inside, and Chris on uh, Educating and the resources and, and uh, um, uh, things that, that we can do in our own lives and I wanted to talk about um, the power of um, and importance of holding an inspiring vision um, because uh, for me uh, if my inspiration is not there then I feel uh, discouraged and, and uh, defeated and and as part of Dharma practice, to see how I can and we can uh, acknowledge the suffering and uh, transform it through wisdom and love uh, as a as a vehicle for awakening, as uh, Tanisra said it, uh, at the beginning. And uh, I know uh, some of you know I, I've been teaching about happiness for for some time and uh was enjoying seeing dharma as a path of happiness for for many years uh but then in my own experience uh, i was kind of stopped dead in my tracks when i uh read bill mckibben's book earth which i highly recommend earth e-a-a-r-t-h uh oh about four years or so I, i i guess and um i was well aware of climate change, but that was the first time that I really let it sink in. Uh, and it shook me as, as it sh- every, everybody is shaken when they take in the information. Uh, and I, it was hard for me to talk about joy for a while, as you can imagine. Uh, and I... Um, really had to let it absorb for, oh, about a year, a year and a half to just feel all the pain and, and wonder, well, God, what can, what can I do? What can we do? And then I uh, realized that um, this is my Dharma practice. Besides the, uh, the, the caring about the world, how can I take this on as my practice and not be overwhelmed with it? So um, I want to share that a little bit with you and, and hope that uh, besides taking it as a Dharma practice where you open to the suffering that uh, the Buddha's words are about moving from suffering to the end of suffering and to, uh, to real peace and happiness inside and to work for that um, in Uh, In one of the the discourses, uh, the Buddha says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of their mind. And as I was frequently thinking and pondering upon how there's no hope and uh, we're doomed and uh, uh, it became more and more a, a kind of discouraging um, a way to hold it and uh, as I realized I need to hold an inspiring vision uh, and to find my inspiration wherever I can because otherwise we're, we're subject to what uh, neuroscientists talk about as a confirmation bias that everything we see will be uh, confirming our belief. So uh, as I found my own inspiration um, I found that I had more more energy for um, for addressing this problem, both intrapersonally and uh, and outwardly. And I um, I did one one thing that I was inspired by uh, was Bhikkhu Bodhi's. I'll share a little bit about my own inspiration and then, and then share uh, my personal uh, reflections. Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, beautiful essay, A Challenge to Buddhists, where he says the special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscious conscience. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. So it seemed like, oh, this is what we're called to do and I want to be a part of that. And then I... Got my inspiration uh, from um, Andrew Harvey, who is uh, um, who wrote a, a beautiful book called *The Hope: A Guide to Sacred Activism*, and he talks about this uh, this uh, dilemma that that we're all facing, that the world is facing, as a dark night of the species, just as our own dharma practice. Uh, Anybody who's done some some deep work knows that we often need to pass through a dark night of the soul uh, as it's sometimes talked of in in Christian terms, where we face our deepest fears and uh, somehow transform them, come out the other end to a great awakening. And if we can see that the world is going through this dark night of the species then we see that this is a huge opportunity that we are living, we've been living in an unsustainable way and something needs to change. And as one friend puts it, we are in a race between fear and consciousness. Uh, I think Lou at the, on the first call, I loved what he said, that we're, things are getting worse and worse and better and better and faster and faster. And that pretty much uh, 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 articulates this challenge that we're in. Um, And so going through this together, this is an opportunity for a great awakening. And as I think about that, I also reflect on uh, Arnold Toynbee's statement, the great historian who said uh, that he thought, looking back, that perhaps the most important development in the 20th century would be Buddhism coming to the West. That's amazing foresight, uh, but it's possibly so that whether you call it Buddhism or the Dharma or consciousness, that seeing ourselves in a bigger picture of interconnectedness, seeing, understanding actions and consequences, understanding... Uh, the the possibility of, of a worldwide um, deepening of consciousness and caring, uh, this is what we have to offer. So when I think about it in, in that way, then uh, it's kind of exciting that, oh my goodness, we are uh, conveyors of that attitude and that principle and it's up to us to hold something um, in, a, in a positive, positive possible light. Uh, somebody else who I've been inspired by is a, a, a fellow named Bob Belt who works with the Obama administration and he's a, a a longtime Dharma practitioner and we had him come and speak to the International Vipassana Teachers Conference uh, and was really a, a, a great um, a key player in helping us come out with a the Dharma teaches climate change statement, and he said. Uh, at, at one point, I said to him, Bob, uh, it's so wonderful that your your Dharma practice and your sustainability work have come together, uh, how synchronous. How fortuitous! And he looked at me. And he said, James, the Dharma holds the key to this, and I realized, wow, this is one of the leading sustainability experts saying that dharma holds the key. What can we do to more and more articulate these teachings and have a voice for consciousness? So I get encouraged by that. And then also seeing how quickly things change that we don't know. We have no idea. Sure, I don't want to be naive and and say, oh, everything's going to work out just fine, there's, it's quite possible that uh, there's not time to change uh, the, the direction so that there's going to be deep and then suffering. But you don't know. And things change so quickly. I'm thinking about same-sex marriage uh, in the last 10 years, how the conventional wisdom has changed. Or even climate change in the last 10 years, even the last two years. I was just seeing that there's, there's two Senate candidates recently who were climate deniers who now have changed their, uh, uh, their platform, realizing that that's not going to get them elected. That kind of shift uh, in the conventional wisdom that changes the, the people in power, seeing, oh, it's no longer okay to deny climate reality that can make things change very quickly or the divestment movement as as Chris mentioned the Rockefellers uh, and Stanford uh, starting this whole or being part of this huge divestment movement uh, I was reading that a 7% shift uh, I read one place a 7% shift and another a 10% shift in the population is what's needed to shift the conventional wisdom in uh, in in general. So you don't have to change everybody. You just have to uh, work on or convey to those who are open to change. Because most people, once they once they hear, oh, this is how I'm supposed to think. Okay, now I'll I'll go along with that. And Mandela, as as Catherine um, uh, talked about. uh, talks of the multiplication of courage. When people get together, they feed off each other's commitment. And the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. When people get together, amazing things can happen. So, as we come from love and uh, connect with each other, we have that multiplication of courage. The Holding hands, it's been shown in, in neuroscience that when you hold somebody's hands, you have a higher threshold for pain and amazing things can happen. As Chris said, action absorbs anxiety. So um, I think it's important for us to get clear on what our next steps are because amazing things can happen when we hold hands and, uh, and join in the possibility. We inspire others and become agents of inspiration. Uh, so w- with that, I, uh, I want to, um, in a few moments, lead us in a, uh, a reflection that perhaps we can hold that inspiring vision and uh, see what our next steps are. I think I'll stop here.
5: Um,
0: to to have this sense of transforming what is actually an overwhelm actually into the the power and the opportunity in the moment, Um, the urgency, the power, and the possibility of moving together um, into action and into response. So as James says, he will be guiding us into a reflective inquiry that we'll be doing in our small breakout groups that we'll be moving into just now, and Kristen and Barry will help guide us through that process. Uh, But I just want to encourage you to actually really take the, 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 the opportunity to enter a group and to engage this inquiry together, if you feel you don't want to, that's fine, then I encourage you to stay with the process of the call. You can meditate and you can write down your response to the inquiry reflection that James is going to lead us into to see how. where's your heart? What is your heart saying in response to what we've heard this morning, in response to this overall enormous and pressing and powerful situation that we're now in? of climate change and also if you are in a group to really um, encourage us to support each other because this is really what, what it's about now. So um, Kristen, please if you could give us the practical information to going into the breakout groups and then James will uh, give us the inquiry uh, it, it's, um, piece for us to explore together.
5: Great, thank you tinister and hello everyone. Uh, we are excited to carry this forward into Sangha, supporting you and connecting with others on the call, exploring this inquiry that James will give to us in a moment. Just to say we consider the sharing a critical part of the cultivation of Sangha and what, what an opportunity um, for us to connect really around the world. You might do your own meditation, even writing down your reflections on the inquiry. James, go ahead, let's hear what you would like the breakout groups to explore.
4: Okay, as, as we've said, uh, action absorbs anxiety. Um, so, just talk of engaging the heart, the head, and the body at, all as skillful ways to address our concern about climate change. You spoke of attending to our heart by opening to all the feelings that arise around this issue. We talked about engaging the head by educating ourselves with regard to various resources available or actions that we might take. And we are speaking of engaging our body in action in inspiring, um, putting our inspiring vision into action with others, or whether individually or joining with others. Now, I'd like you to just go inside for a moment and notice your response to the following reflection. It's important for all of us to have a next step in mind. Some will benefit from exploring the feelings that arise about the overwhelming nature of the problem. Others will find it helpful to gain more information and explore available resources. Others might be currently drawn to action. And it might be a combination of all of these. See what feels real for you. Which next step or combination of steps calls you?
0: Thank you. Thank you, James. So uh, which next step?
4: And, uh, wait, let me just finish here. Now, imagine what it would feel like if you take this next step and how it feels in your body, in your mind, in your heart. If it seems like a worthwhile endeavor, get in touch with the heartfelt decision to take this next step and notice how that feels. Now share what might come up in your reflection with your breakout group and taking the support of others and as you hear them and support them as well.
5: Welcome back, everyone. and We're all here together again in one big sangha conversation, and we'd like to hear from you in this full gathering anything that you'd like to share from the reflection that James offered from your breakout groups or from your own meditation. So if you would, press the number one on your phone keypad if you have something to share. And I will ask, uh, with so many of us on the call we would ask you to share from the heart and keep it relatively brief so that we can get to as many of you as possible and then I'll invite the teachers uh, to respond um, where that feels right. Very good. So it looks like you have responses. So um, yeah, let's start with Kirk uh Kirk, what is what would you like to share into this whole group
3: well i'm concerned about a, 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 there's a sociopathic uh, influence in our in our economy and ecology excuse me there's there's uh certain influences that that uh you know that that uh, uh, lack a level of consciousness, and and so that I'm trying to, to recognize that and how you deal with that because it seems we're going through an epidemic of of, of sociopath uh, eco sociopaths, you know. My thought. So,
5: would any of the teachers like to respond? I mean, what I'm hearing asks for if I can. It's okay, Kirk. What I hear is it's sort of there's a sense of a a kind of destructive element that is kind of overwhelming in its intent. And then maybe something that's not quite wired up. And how can we we as practitioners work with that? That's what I'm hearing in
3: yeah. the question. Yeah, social pathology concerning our environment. Some people who just who could care less about having a nuclear power plant power plant next door, you know.
4: Yeah. Well, uh, I would say uh, that, that, is, that is part of the problem that a whole lot of people are either completely unaware or haven't connected to the dots on cause and effect. Uh, and you're, you're not going to uh, convince those people right off the bat. That's where there's uh, the more growing awareness and consciousness uh, from our own, uh, not trying to convince the as you call them sociopaths, but getting uh, others, all the people who are ready to, uh, who do care about the the planet and the world, uh, more and more a collective consciousness that develops, that shifts the conventional wisdom and uh, also influences the powers that be. As as I was saying in my uh, in my time those uh, two senate candidates who had been climate deniers all of a sudden have changed their tune if it's enough uh, enough people enough candidates or people in power seeing oh this is an unpopular way to go then you don't have to convince those others the conventional wisdom will do its own shift. So you be a voice for consciousness as much as possible and do inspire the people who are ready to open up to uh, to looking at things in a new way.
5: Thank you. Thank you, James. Um, how about let's go to Andrea? Andrea, or I'm not sure if I'm saying Hi. your name right. I'm sorry. Yeah, if you can go ahead. What, what would you like to share from... Uh, the reflection or what's alive for you?
6: Yeah, um, I, live in, I live in London, but I'm from America. And what I discussed with our group was the need to engage people, even in very small ways, um, so, that, so that apathy doesn't get in the way. And I suppose I was talking about um, just even a simple exercise of getting people to, when they go to the supermarket, um, putting all their items in the, in the cart, to reflect on maybe even just one item in there that's unnecessary, or if it isn't unnecessary, that they'd be willing to part with, but that in that moment, that they also bring to mind all that they have, all the gratitude um, for what's in the cart, for the people in their life, for their abundance. And in that same moment, that they bring to mind um, all the things in the world, all the gaps, all the the places where they want to give and that need their help. And that they just note that item and the price of that item down. And that that simple engagement over time um, might build so that people would get a sense of how their action, you know, it kind of brings what Catherine was saying about you're addressing the vulnerability in that moment, you're addressing the, um, the gratitude element, and then you're addressing the action so that you actually feel a sense of power and strength from what you're doing. And I just wonder if that's how we could engage some people to, to start to think about things like climate change that seem, seem too big
5: to even touch. Well, that's a Dharma talk right there to itself. Uh, it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Catherine, Chris, uh, James, anything you would like to share based on what Andrea is offering?
2: Yeah, I could share something. Hi. Um, yes, I'm wondering, for my first question back would be, Who? which people? Are they already people involved in your local sitting group, or are you thinking of going in straight to your town or supermarket. But I I like the principle for those who are willing and wish to engage in that, if the willingness is already there. Certainly some of the renunciation or the letting go, like uh, I think Chris said, or James, it it isn't because that, that one thing there necessarily makes a difference, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And what I'm finding with those is it's the way to stay awake. So when I decide to take a train instead of a plane somewhere, it's a little more uncomfortable, but I'm I'm staying a bit more awake, and I'm I'm kind of in solidarity, a little bit more in solidarity in that moment, and that keeps me alive. So yes, if if the people want to go for it, absolutely, yeah,
5: right. Oh, thank you, Catherine. Uh, let's I think we have time for just one more um if we can keep it a little short. um we can probably get one more in so let's uh john john aaron uh, go ahead you're you're live we yeah. can
7: hear you great hi thanks um so a couple of things came up for me and sort of were reflected in our group. The one thing that that gives me some sense of confidence and I think chris and James both addressed it and, and I know Kinesira has is that just, um, you know, knowing that my individual actions are not mine alone, that, you know, that my neighbors and, and, you know, people in my building, people in my sangha, people elsewhere are all doing the same thing and those things all do have an impact. Um, that said, and I, I guess I'd mostly want to hear from Chris on this is it seems to me that if somehow our actions or somehow we can reach, make a tectonic, one tectonic shift, that is a Koch brother or the head of ExxonMobil or whoever, these people are not, they may be deluded, but they're not unintelligent. And they, they know full well what the impacts of their actions are. If somehow a shift can be made on that level, then one of those shifts would have a massive impact throughout. And, you know, what we can do to make that happen is what's frustrating because, you know, it's not easy to reach people like that. And, and while James was talking about the kind of 10% shift in the population, you know, there's still this frustration of just seeing what the destruction that these companies are doing and recognizing that if they would only shift, everything else would shift.
5: Mm, Yeah, it's a really great question. Chris, we we don't have a lot of time, but I'm wondering if you can reflect on what John is proposing.
3: Well, I really appreciate what you're saying, John, and it it just seems to me that these, these big institutions are also vulnerable. They're vulnerable to what people, you know, they depend on us as consumers and on what we think of them, and it feels as if what we need is, a growing mobilization of public opinion that starts to regard these big companies in the way that we've, uh, regarded, we've come to regard tobacco companies, you know, where, where we, we, we just see them very differently now from 20 years ago. And that if we can, through our conversations and our work, help each of us to, to shift the attitudes, then, then this is how we can engage and influence these big, seemingly impregnable organizations.
0: Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. We're going to begin our wrap-up now. Thank you, Krista, and thank you to our teachers. i um, just take a breath because it's just so full and so rich, this conversation, and I'm so, so grateful. We're also grateful for all of you participating because we know that it represents uh, others that are not actually online but will hear the conversation and that are engaging and are engaged. So. Much, much gratitude to everyone. Now before we just uh, finish, I'd like to also just mention that we do have the Facebook group that you can access through One Earth Sangha to continue the discussion. And um, to also just ask uh, Barry, if you would just uh, give us a minute on Maestro and uh, let us know about Maestro, which which is our host for these conversations.
7: Sure, can you hear me okay?
0: Yeah, great, Barry, right,
7: go for it. Great, So, thank you. Uh, I'm the call driver for today. At Maestro Conference provides leading industry teleconference features uh, like being able to mute people, raise your hands, do breakout groups. If you would like um, information about Maestro Conference, mm-hmm. simply press 1 on your telephone keypad. Maestro will be gentle and send you some information about the features and benefits of their service, including a, a free trial. So if you're interested, just press 1 on your keypad. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. I'd like to uh, invite you all back to our uh, fourth conversation, which will be next Sunday at the same time when we host Chaz DiCapua, Bonnie Duran, and Vinnie Ferraro. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll continue um, on uh, Facebook, as I say. And uh, again, thank you so much. And uh, Catherine, please, could you, uh, can I invite you to uh, finish us today with a
2: sharing of blessing? Thank you, Tanisara. What a privilege to share the blessing here. I'm really letting myself feel it right now. So Mm -hmm. if you will breathe, sense your feet on the ground. Take a breath through the heart-mind, this sensitivity, this intelligent, receptive, ever-regenerative quality. And in gratitude, really in gratitude for you all, and all that you bring to the table here. Your practice, your love of truth, your love of justice. To all the people who have been involved in setting this up, and all the different qualities you bring, we're all so different in with such different gifts and qualities that we all bring to the table, in gratitude and in blessing. And may this blessing of being in Sangha, of the awake and timeless refuge, may this be for the welfare of the many, for all beings, to the north, to the west, to the east, to the south, above and below, without exception, those that swim, those that crawl, those that fly, those that breathe, those that are human, all of us, wherever we are right now. May all beings receive the blessings of our good intention and our continuing work together. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you so much. It's beautiful.
0: And again, thank you to everyone. And uh, goodbye for now. And uh, see you and listen to you and share together next Sunday.